Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. And this afternoon, I have a very special guest who's come back on, Adnan Rashid. You're welcome back, sir. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me and, again. Uh, and this time, we're actually both in London, uh, which is great. Uh, the last time you were uh, you were guest, uh, I think it was back in July, and I was in some other country, unmentionable country south of here, but you were in London, I think. Um, for those who uh, don't know, uh, Adnan is uh, actually a, a very well-known historian and a lecturer, and he's debated and lectured and uh, had all sorts of uh, fascinating conversations. You can uh, see a lot of these on his YouTube um, account. Uh, just Google his name, Adnan Rashid, and you can also follow him on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is Mr. Adnan Rashid. Um, so without more ado, I will just mention the uh, the subject of uh, today's discussion. It's really Adnan's presentation. And uh, that is those indicators in the Quran, uh, be they linguistic or historical, that Adnan considers could not have been authored by a 7th century Arab. And it's a particularly fascinating area, and I know Adnan has some, uh, some, some insights into this which are perhaps not quite so well known. So over to you, Adnan, and um, thank you. Thank you, Paul, for having me again, and this is a fascinating topic. It has fascinated me for, for years. Uh, the more I read the Quran, the more subtle ideas come to light, and you think, wow, how could this be possible? You know, it is, it, this can only be uh, from the divine. This uh, text or this uh, literature cannot possibly come from uh, the human mind. And I have my reasons to, to believe that. And the reasons will be discussed in due course today. Uh, so there are many, many clear verses in the Quran that give us uh, prophecies, for example, uh, future events are being foretold. Uh, one of those prophecies is in uh, chapter 24, verse 55, where Allah says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ وَعَدَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَيَسْتَخْلِفَنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ كَمَا اسْتَخْلَفَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ It is a promise of Allah to those who believe among you that Allah will grant you succession in the land like He did uh, to uh, those who came before you. So this was a prophecy made for the immediate followers of Muhammad, peace be upon him, and their followers. So let's say the first three generations. The Quran is talking directly to the primary audience of the Quran. And who are these people? These are predominantly uh, the Arabs, right? Uh, they were the majority of the follow followers of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Because it says, Minkum, those who have believed from among you, Right, uh, those who believe from you. So he's, the Quran is primarily talking directly to those people who are listening to the Quran uh, directly from the Prophet, and it makes a prophecy that you will be given succession in the land. And lo and behold, within a century, the Muslims are ruling from China to hmm. Spain. This is the largest stretch of land ever carved by one group of people to date. Okay, of course, the Mongols later on broke that record, but not for long. Even the Mongols were spiritually conquered by Islam later on, as many of the Mongol leaders, they ended up becoming Muslims. So they got immersed within the, the Muslim civilization. So this was the largest stretch of land ever governed or taken, for that matter, by a group of people. And the Quran made a direct prophecy about that. And this prophecy can, of course, be found in the Bible. Uh, relating to an Arabian prophet in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, you have discussed this topic in detail with uh, Dr. Our beloved Dr. Ali Atai. He has, uh, you know, discussed this topic in detail with you, so I'm not going to go into that. So there is an uh, Arabian uh, prophet. Uh, another superb historian and scholar. Sorry, he's uh, uh, an extraordinary Absolutely. individual. Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. no doubt, no doubt. Well, well, what a mind he is, and his, 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 his take on certain things really fascinates me. You know, he's an amazing mind, and... Uh, Sometimes the information he imparts is just mind-blowing. But uh, moving on with our point. So this yeah. is a very direct prophecy in the Quran. So I wouldn't call it one of the subtleties of the Quran or one of the subtle ideas in the in the Quran to, to highlight its divine origins. Uh, even this prophecy is quite mind-boggling if you think about it. I mean, the historians to this day are, are not certain as to what caused that rapid expansion of Islam and they come up with many theories. We have discussed this in 
uh, in the past previously. So we will tonight, or today rather, we will discuss um, those subtleties in the Quran that point to the divine origin of the Quran. Those subtleties mm. are so subtle that they could not have possibly been uh, put by um, a human, uh, let alone uh, a, a person from the 7th century who's never been to a school, never been to an academy, doesn't know how to read and write. Uh, he's never seen a library in his life. Um, and then lo and behold, he's coming out with these verses and these verses have subtle ideas, subtle indicators that only uh, made sense to us in the 20th possibly in the 19th century, some of them, and the 20th century and the 21st century, we're still being fascinated by some of these ideas in the Quran. So what are they? Let's get straight to the point. What are these subtle ideas that could not have come from uh, 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 an Arabian prophet or an Arabian shepherd, for that matter, who was unlettered, who was unlettered, who had never read a book in his life, who never wrote a book. And this was public knowledge, by the way. This is not something uh, Muhammad claimed for himself, sallallahu alayhi wa uh, Rather, this was put down in the Quran. The Quran clearly highlights that point that you have never read a book before this. You have never written a book with your right hand before this so that they cannot say that you forged this text. So this was publicly read. His companions were aware of this information that he's unlettered. This man has never been to a school or an academy. So having highlighted that point, uh, a lot of these companions were completely blown away by the information they were receiving in this text. And we are still being fascinated to this day when we look at the subtleties. So what are those subtleties? Uh, I'll give you examples from Egyptology. Egyptology is relatively a modern phenomenon. It is, um, how can I put it? It is a recent uh, field of study. Uh, when I say recent, I mean it started in the 19th century when the hieroglyphs were decoded. Of course, there are Europeans uh, who traveled to Egypt uh, in the 16th century uh, and in the 17th century and in the 18th century. They, 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 they drew uh, pyramids. They were aware of Sphinx. Uh, in fact, there is a book that was published in uh, 1615 and it was authored by a man called George Sandys. George Sandys was an English poet, and he traveled through the, uh, the Middle East, uh, and he also traveled through Turkey and Egypt. And in Egypt, he came across the pyramids and Sphinx, and he actually, he actually put a drawing uh, of the pyramids and Sphinx in his book, that was published in London, in Britain in 1615, uh, more than 400 years ago, right? So the Europeans were aware of the Egyptian monuments and all that. But when were these monuments actually deciphered, you know, in terms of the language that was written on them? The, the, the language is called hieroglyphs. These words or these characters were decoded or deciphered in the early 19th century after a stone was discovered uh, the stone is called the Rosetta Stone, which is currently found in the British Museum in London. I strongly recommend to everyone uh, living in London to go and see this stone. It has three languages. On, on, on the top, you have ancient Egyptian. Then there is a Middle Egyptian language. And then in the bottom, you have uh, uh, ancient coin Greek, right? So what did the scholars do? Uh, they used the Greek language to decode uh, the Middle Egyptian and from the Middle Egyptian, they were able to decipher uh, the hieroglyphs and the content uh, was exactly the same in three languages. It was basically a tax announcement uh, on the part of the Ptolemies. Uh, Ptolemy was uh, a successor of Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great and when the Greeks came to govern Egypt, they basically made announcements in this way. So they would put them in three different languages. So once the hieroglyphs were decoded, the temples were read, uh, the history of the Egyptians uh, or ancient Egyptians started to make more sense. And some of these facts came to light that were unknown previously. And amazingly, one of the facts that came to light was that Joseph, uh, who is um, basically a biblical figure, and his chronology is uh, not certain. Unfortunately, the scholars are still not unanimous, but scholars put him, biblical scholars put uh, the time of Joseph somewhere in the Old Kingdom between 18th century BC to the 20th century BC. 
okay, uh, within these two centuries. They put Joseph somewhere in between these two centuries. And, and Moses is put somewhere in the new kingdom, uh, which, which dates from the, the 13th century BC to the 15th century BC, right? So <clears throat> why am I talking about this? Amazingly, when the Quran talks about Joseph in chapter 12 of the Quran, the Quran highlights that Joseph uh, was in Egypt for much of his life. And when he was addressing the king of Egypt, he simply called him the king, Al-Malik, right? Or mm. basically Malik, literally, you know, in the Egyptian language, in ancient Egyptian, it is Humph, H-M-F. But when we come to Moses speaking to the king or speaking about the king, he calls him Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? The title Pharaoh is used. Now, to those who are reading the Quran for the last 1,300 years before the hieroglyphs were deciphered, it's not a big deal. King, Pharaoh, the same thing, who cares, right? But it is a subtle point that only came to light in the 19th century. Uh, and actually, it was highlighted by the Christians, not the Muslims. The Christians are the ones who brought this to our attention in the encyclopedias of the Bible in the 19th century uh, when they studied Egyptology and they were able to read uh, all these temples and what's, what's written there. So uh, in the Old Kingdom, uh, the title Pharaoh was not used for the kings. Uh, it was there uh, as a reference to the great household. The word Pharaoh comes from the Egyptian word para'a, which literally means the great house. Okay, the great house, in other words, the royal family. But it was never used in the old kingdom, according to the temple, uh, the readings on the temples. Uh, it was never used as a proper noun or a reference to the king, right? It was only later on, during the new kingdom period, uh, when Moses is thought to have lived, uh, this title, para'a, is being used directly for the king, for the, for the, for the monarch, for the for the person ruling. So this is a subtle point which is made in the Quran. When Joseph speaks to the king or speaks about the king, calls him simply Malik, not Pharaoh. Doesn't call him Pharaoh. And when Moses speaks about the king, he calls him in the Quran, the Pharaoh, right? Now, when we go to the Bible, we, we find this anachronism in the Bible where Abraham is referring to the king as the Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. Joseph is also talking to to or about the king of Egypt as Pharaoh, so is Moses. This is anachronism. This is a historic. This is an. Uh, this is an error. And and I'm assuming, after the post-exilic period, those who are copying the Bible added their wisdom or the, their knowledge of history into the text of the Bible, calling the kings of Egypt Pharaoh, even in the time of Joseph and Abraham, which is which is actually a mistake. So this is a subtle point in the Quran. This mistake hasn't been repeated in the Quran. And those who claim that the Quran is a copy, it is simply plagiarism of the Bible, are simply uh, they're, they're, they're faced with this particular reality that the Quran doesn't repeat the mistakes of the Bible. Where Bible is wrong historically, the Quran doesn't repeat that mistake for some reason, right? So therefore, the Quran could not have been copied from the Bible, especially in the 7th century, when people were not able to make these distinctions between the king of Moses and the king of uh, Joseph. Um, and the details are far too many. I've made videos on that. Uh, they can be found on my YouTube channel, The King of Egypt during the time of Moses and, uh, and, and Joseph. This is, so this is one of the subtleties. Another subtlety uh, which uh, is uh, basically about Egyptology or, or, or the, the, the history of pharaohs, the Quran in chapter 10, verse 94, makes a point. Um, it states when uh, Pharaoh was killed, um, when Pharaoh was killed, uh, he was drowned in the sea. He was basically destroyed destroyed with his army. The army was perceiving the Israelites when Israelites were trying to escape from uh, slavery. The Pharaoh with his uh, military, with his army, pursued the Israelites. And as a result, he drowned in the Red Sea. And then basically when he was drowning, he, he wanted to repent. He wanted to believe in the God of Moses. Uh, and he, he actually announced that. But that repentance facing death uh, was not accepted because he was dying and that repentance was not accepted. In fact, he was warned that your body will not be preserved for posterity to take lessons from. Paul, I, I'm assuming you're reading uh, that particular passage from the Quran, right? Do you I mind was, reading it? Do you mind was, reading it? Okay, I was uh, 
which uh, sorry, can you remind me of the exact passage again. I was chapter just reading ten, chapter ten of the Quran, uh, yeah. verse ninety four. Ninety four. Okay, okay. I'll just read that out. Chapter ten, ninety four. Chapter ten, ninety four. That's the about Jonah. Ten ninety four. Mm -hmm. So if you, Prophet, are in doubt about what we have revealed to you, ask those who have been reading the scriptures before you. Right. Okay. No, this is this is another passage. Chapter 10, verse 90, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, 90. 90. 90. Yeah. yeah. Ah, yes. Here we go. We took the children of Israel across the sea. Pharaoh and his troops pursued them in arrogance and aggression. But as he was drowning, he cried, I believe there is no God except the one the children of Israel believe him. I submit to him. Now, when you have always been a rebel and a troublemaker, today we shall save only your corpse as a sign for all posperity. Uh, now that's... Yeah. So this is the Quran, chapter 10, verse 90, that clearly states that God announced to Pharaoh that your body will be preserved and mm -hmm. it will be preserved for posterity to see and take lessons from it. I mean, this is what we understand, right? Yeah. Now, this is a reference to mummification of Egyptian kings. And this process or this idea, this phenomenon called uh, uh, mummification was unknown to the Arabs. There are no historic references mm. uh, I am aware of, whereby it can clearly be seen that someone mentioned uh, the mummification of Egyptian kings uh, in this detail. Or for example, uh, for them to be preserved for that long, I am not aware of any historic references in ancient histories and uh, let alone uh, histories uh, written close to the time of Prophet Muhammad or even in the Bible. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there are no reference to mummification uh, of pharaohs. Uh, is, is there anything in the Bible, Paul? Uh, you know, I was thinking about that. I actually don't know. I don't recall reading anything, but I would, I would yes, need to there, check. But to recall. my knowledge, there isn't any direct reference to mummification in the Bible, right? But this seems to be a subtle... Uh, indication of that particular phenomenon that mm. this takes place and Pharaoh's body in particular will be preserved, it will be protected, it will not decompose so that posterity can mm. see and take lessons from it, right? Now we so, find many Pharaohs, sorry. So the Quran says, verse 92, just to emphasize, today we shall save only your corpse as a sign to all posterity and that's a very interesting statement which obviously you're now going to uh, unpack some more but uh it is very clear so yeah absolutely so here uh, there are two points that need to be looked at number one today your body will be preserved right it will be preserved uh, so one one may question why why would you preserve uh the body of a transgressor someone like pharaoh who claimed to be god himself right uh, and the second point is for posterity so it's not only for your people uh, to see and take lessons, like people who you know immediately, your relatives, your military generals, your army, not for those people. It is going to be preserved for posterity, for the future generations. Now, this is not an accident. This is not a fluke in the Quran. Just, you know, Prophet Muhammad was thinking of this idea. Let me put this down and, you know, just throw it out. Okay, it doesn't work like that, right? It is a very specific reference to a phenomenon, which is mummification of the Egyptian kings. And we know today, most of these tombs were discovered in the 19th century, and more so in the 20th century, when major tombs were discovered, uh, a lot of these pharaohs were found. In fact, recently there was a procession in Egypt where 22 mm. pharaohs or 22 Egyptian kings were paraded through the streets of Cairo, you know, mm. as, as, as a sign of uh, the richness of the history of Egypt. And the president of Egypt uh, was there himself to it's witness incredible. it. I saw this on YouTube. It's an incredible scene. Uh, the, the, the Egyptian government really uh, made a big, big deal out, out of this, identifying itself with its historic past. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I have a watch on YouTube. It's worth viewing, I think. Absolutely. And, and look, some people claim that Ramses II is that pharaoh. Right. Uh, some historians have claimed that some biblical scholars have claimed that some others dispute that point. But we don't know which pharaoh it was. There are pharaohs preserved. There are many. Actually, Ramses II, his father is also preserved. His body is also there. Right. <clears throat> uh, 
And then we have Tutankhamun, who was a young boy. So we can't assume that that was the, the pharaoh of, <laughs> of Egypt. But Ramses II is a very good candidate because he, he, he reigned for nearly 70 years. He was, his reign was very long and there are stellars in his name. In fact, he's known, according to one of the stellars, he's known as uh, the conqueror of Israel, the conqueror of Israel. So this is a propaganda tool uh, in the ancient days. How would they highlight or inflate the, the image of the king? They would simply put monuments and uh, mm -hmm. inscribe information on the monuments as a, as, a, as a source of propaganda. So stellars were, were one of the sources of propaganda. And one of the stellars clearly states uh, it's called the Israel Stella. If you Google it, you will see it. It states that the conqueror of Israel, and this is the first mention of Israel, historically speaking. Yeah. Um, the, the first ever uh, mention of uh, the tribe of Israel or the nation of Israel, uh, historically speaking, is on this stella, right? And it is uh, dedicated to Ramses II. So Ramses II is a good candidate, and his body is there. And in fact, his body is one of the most preserved, one of the best preserved, bodies from uh, uh, Egyptian antiquity. And uh, if he was the pharaoh of uh, Moses, then of course, um, the prophecy made by the Quran or the challenge made by the Quran or this subtle, subtle point, subtle in the, uh, uh, you know, reference to mummification has been fulfilled. So this could not have been known to an Arabian shepherd living in the 7th century, uh, this kind of sophistication can only be expected from uh, the divine. You know, only Allah can reveal this information to a man uh, in Arabia who was unlettered. Moving on to other subtleties in the Quran, because <laughs> I think two of these subtleties in the Quran have taken much of our time. So moving on to other things. For example, the Quran uses accurate language to describe um, certain... Um, phenomena uh, um how can i uh, put it into context let's say the christian theology the christians believe that god uh, who is the most merciful killed his own son on the cross to forgive humanity what we call vicarious atonement right uh, jesus dying on the cross uh for the sins of humanity right which is what paul preached uh extensively throughout his career he wrote letters and he emphasized this point of grace by the death of christ or by the cross and what it means is that the merciful god instead of killing humanity instead of destroying humanity instead of punishing humanity simply put all those sins on his son and he killed him on the cross and that way humanity has forgiveness through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a simple way, you know, Christian theology can be understood in this way, uh, the, the theology of the cross in particular. Paul, did I misrepresent it any, in any way? No, not at all. You're, you're a consummate Christian theologian, Adnan. No, no, I'm not. I'm only a student. Okay. And so, so this is the, the, the theology of the cross. Now, how does Allah address this theology? In the Quran, in chapter 21 of the Quran, verse number 26, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, verse 26. Chapter 21, verse 26 of the Quran uses very specific words to address this theology of the cross that is supposed to represent the mercy of God, right? So what does God say in the Quran? And they, the Christians, say that the most mercy one, most, mo the most merciful one, the most merciful one has taken a son unto himself. And why has he taken this son unto himself? So that he can kill him on the cross and forgive humanity. So this entire theology um, has been put into one sentence, how Allah addresses it. So why is Allah saying this and what point is he trying to make? Allah is simply saying that they claim that the merciful one, the ultimate, uh, the ultimately merciful one has taken a son and this son will be later. Uh, of course, that's an extension. This is what I am adding, the meaning to this verse, that uh, this son will be killed for the sins of humanity. Now, Allah is using basically uh, a rhetorical device in the Quran here, which is to do with eloquence. Uh, what, is, what is he saying? He's saying it is absurd. It is absurd that they are saying that the merciful one would take a son and then kill him for the sins of humanity. This theology doesn't make sense because the merciful one, 
the ultimately merciful one doesn't need to do that because he's ar-rahman if you go and see the meaning the translation of ar-rahman uh, uh, from the arabic language into the english language it would be simply uh, translated as the ultimately merciful one okay i mean uh, when we read uh, the quran and we start with bismillahir rahmanir rahim in the name of god the most merciful and the beneficent right so ar-rahman and ar-rahim come pretty much from the same root word in the arabic language but, but both mean two different things ar-rahman means ultimately merciful his mercy en- encompasses every living creature in the universe not only in this world ar-rahim is basically uh, he he is he is ar-rahim he is merciful on the day of judgment to the believers so uh, rahma that comes from the root uh, that comes from the word ar-rahim is only for the day of judgment but ar-rahman the phenomenon ar-rahman is for the entire universe so so long as the creatures are living living and believing or non believing all of them will have that mercy from god so uh, let's talk about disbelievers who who are having parties and and you know uh, they are some of them apparently doing well uh, causing a lot of mischief in the world right they look very rich very happy prosperous uh, this is part of god's mercy which has been given within this universe while these people are alive right they commit sins they do transgressions but they still have this food these provisions they take benefit from all of god's mercy right so this is what ar rahman means god is merciful ultimately merciful now if he's ultimately merciful he doesn't need to kill his son to forgive you he, you, he can simply forgive you you turn to him you ask him for mercy and he will forgive you so that's the point Allah is making in the Quran to address Christian theology in a sentence wa qala takhadhu ar-rahmanu walada they claim that the most merciful has taken a son onto himself right this is absurd he doesn't need to do that why would he take a son the christians claim that god took on a son to himself so that he can sacrifice him for the sins of humanity that's that's what the christian theology states right and Allah in one sentence is addressing that point saying he doesn't need to do that this is absurd even this thought doesn't make sense he doesn't need to do that because he's the most merciful one he can simply forgive you without killing his son or taking even and, taking on to himself and, a son and the great irony of this is even in the christian canonical new testament gospel say the gospel of luke for example the precisely the same message is preached on the lips of jesus uh, hmm. in luke's gospel in his parables and his teaching about the mercy and grace of god is exactly the same message that you've just articulated from the quran Uh, I, I grant you that's not what Christians believe. Subsequently, but um, it's arguable that the historical Jesus, the real Jesus, is better represented in those some of those early passages in Luke, for example, uh, than in later Christian belief uh, as expanded by people like Paul. So the irony is what you're saying is actually found in the Christian Bible as well in some places. Absolutely, no doubt, uh, and the synoptic tradition is very much in line with much of uh, the Muslim thought on Jesus. Right? It was exactly. only in the Gospel of John when the the Christology was inflated, and it was basically given a sta- Jesus was given a status in the Gospel of John, as you have talked about it so much, Paul. But it's not, it's not just the Christology; it's specifically the point about Jesus dying as a sacrifice for sins in Luke's Gospel. This is well known. It's not my idea; I didn't discover it yes. uh, in Luke. Jesus is not presented as a sacrifice for sin or someone who dies for the sins of the world. He is presented as a Jewish prophet who preaches a message of repentance and mercy and forgiveness. Uh he is not a sacrifice for sin in Luke's gospel. Now he is in some other gospels, but at least in Luke, uh his understanding is very similar to the Islamic understanding. And that's been noticed Absolutely. by many Yeah. Absolutely. And this is the point Allah is making in this particular verse in chapter 21 verse 26 that the merciful one the ultimately merciful one who is god he doesn't need to take a son for him to kill him to forgive humanity he doesn't need this drama all he needs to do uh, but all he, i mean all people need to do the all humanity needs to do is to turn to him in repentance and he will forgive you and we find references to this in the bible and in the quran just turn to god and god will forgive you because he is the most merciful one right he doesn't need to do these kind of a uh, strange uh, ritualistic uh, greco roman uh, gymnastics for for him to forgive uh, and, and is there in the old testament as you know with jonah when jonah was told to go and preach to the ninevites 
a message of repentance, which he did reluctantly, few shenanigans on the way. But anyway, ultimately he got there and did it. The Nineveh's repented, the king instituted sackcloth and ashes, all the rest of it. And what happened? God forgave them. Did they Absolutely. have to sacrifice a cow in the temple? Did they have to believe in Jesus dying for their sins? No, none of that because of the Rahma of God. And it's even there in the Old Testament as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, moving on to another point I wanted to very quickly make mm -hmm. was about the name of John the Baptist in the mm -hmm. Quran. Mm -hmm. Many Christian missionaries and other researchers have picked on this and they, they, they said that Yahya is not the name of John the Baptist. So why is he called Yahya? And the Quran states that no one was given uh, this name before him, right? So when we go to the tafsirs of the Quran, the commentaries, uh, especially the ones given by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, we find two opinions. One opinion is that no one with this character was given this name before John the Baptist because John the Baptist had a very unique character, a very unique uh, um personality in the, for that matter right so no one with that character was ever given that name before another opinion is of course that no one was given this name uh, at all okay so one can choose uh, either one of these opinions What's the when we look at so do you know the reference in the quran for this is this is chapter 19 of the quran surah maryam surah maryam the okay. chapter named after after mary the yes. the mother of jesus christ right so it is there uh, the, the the very beginning of the chapter it talks about john the baptist and his birth and it highlights the point that uh john the baptist was born of a barren woman right uh, she was a barren woman she was not old like uh, like sarah the wife of Ab abraham she she's mentioned as an old woman right when she was given the glad tiding of the birth of a son uh, she laughed she simply laughed that why, how is that possible? How can I have a son when I'm so old? But in this case, in the case of John the Baptist, his mother is Akir. She is barren. She cannot give birth to a child, right? And then uh, as a miracle, John the Baptist is born of a barren woman, right? To Zachariah, to Zechariah, right? Now, why is he given this name Yahya and what does it actually mean? This is the subtle point in the Quran I'm, I'm, I'm okay. coming to right now, right? Why isn't he called John? Why isn't he called, simply called John? What is the Arabic equivalent of the word John? It, it would be Yohanan, okay? Taken from the Hebrew word Yohanan. I mean, there is uh, uh, the Hebrew name, which is Yohanan, right? Or in Arabic, it could also be Yohanna, Yohanna, okay? John could be Yohanna. So why doesn't God, God call him? Uh, simply Yohanna or Yohanan. Why Yahya? Now, going to the first opinion I mentioned from the Tafsir that no one with this character or these characteristics was given this name before him, right? So that name is basically Yahya. Yahya is basically, as I understand it, and this is one of the benefits of the Quran or one of the subtle points in the Quran, uh, Yahya comes from the, uh, the Hebrew word Yahya. Yahya actually means God gives life. Mm. Okay. The, the meaning of the word Yahya means God gives life. It's, 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 uh, it's from the word Hay. You know, one of the God, one of the names of God is Hay. Al-Hay Al-Qayyum. Okay. He is forever living and everlasting. Okay. Now that word Hay in the Arabic language means life. Okay. Uh, and John the Baptist is given this name Yahya. In other words, God gives life. In his case, why does God give life to him in particular is because his mother is barren. The Quran specifically mentions that, that his mother is barren. So mm -hmm. this is a subtle point, right? Uh, where God gives a title to a person whose name, whose proper name is something else, but yeah. he gives him a title because of the reality of his birth. He is given birth from a barren, right? That's why in his case, only God gives life. It's a miracle. Okay, it's a miracle indicated in the name. Now, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Something I'm about to tell you right now might blow your minds away intellectually. <laughs> intellectually, right? Um, I'm all prepared, Adam. Hit, hit me with it. <laughs> hit me with it. If, you, if you go to verse 13 of chapter nine, uh, 19, so, yeah. verse 13 of the same chapter, mm -hmm. the name 
of John the Baptist, which is basically Yohanan or Yohanna, is planted in this verse in a very indirect way. And amazingly, this word is only used once in the Quran and it is only used for one person. And that person is John the Baptist. This word is not used for anyone else throughout the entire Quran. It is never used for any other person, right? What is that word? That word is Hanan, Hanan, right? Hanan, the word Hanan comes from the same root word as Yohanna, Yohanan, or John, if you want to call him John, right, in, in Latin, right? Um, so now the question is, why would God or why would even Muhammad use this word in an indirect way in this verse to uh, to to reference or to point uh, to John the Baptist? And what is that word? Hananu milladunna. Hananu milladunna. In the Arabic language that he is, uh, if you read the, the verse, uh, Paul, how, how does your copy translate that? Right, this is chapter 19, verse 13, or which? Correct. Okay, yeah. I'll read it from 12. So uh, just context. We said, John, hold on to the scripture firmly. While he was still a boy, we granted him wisdom, tenderness from us and purity. He was devout, kind to his parents, not domineering or rebellious. Okay, stop there. Tenderness from us... Uh, is basically Hananu Milladunna, okay, in the Arabic language. So Hanan, the word Hanana or Hanan is translated in the English language as tenderness. And it says tenderness from us. So John basically is tenderness from us. God is saying in the Quran that John, Yahya, is tenderness from us. But the word used there is Hananu Milladunna, okay. Hanan is exactly the same word as Yohanan or Yohanna. So this is a subtle reference to John the Baptist and his proper name in the Quran without using his name, without using his name. So Allah is saying, we know what we're doing. We are calling him Yahya because of the miraculous birth he had. So he's Yahya because only God can give life through a baron. So therefore, he's Yahya for that reason. Mm. Uh, and he's John, according to the verse 13, because... He is Hananu Milladunna. He is tenderness from us. And the word tenderness is actually the name of John the Baptist, which is Yohanan, Yohanna. So tell me this is an accident. Tell me this is planned. This is this is a bunch of uh, scholars in the 7th century putting their heads together and they're planning all of this and they're saying, okay, hold on a second. We're going to put John's name in a coded form in a different uh, way, um, in a very indirect um, style in the Quran without saying the name. Now, I am sure that Prophet Muhammad was not aware of this, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Sorry. It does beg a belief. And, but, but this is being uncovered these days. I've spoken not just yourself, but to people like um, Usman Sheikh, uh, who has studied this at Oxford University. And this is now dawning in a big way on Western academic scholarship of the Quran. And this is only recent. This is only like in the last 10, 20 years. Before that, the old Orientalist stereotypes of cut and paste jobs of the Bible. Uh, and the Quran's got it all wrong. This has all been abandoned now or nearly all been abandoned. There are a few scholars on the on the, the, the margins that still might do that. But the majority now is looking at the subtleties. The very things that you're highlighting are now being discussed and looked for and uncovered by the highest levels of Western scholarship at Oxford, for example, the work of Nicolai, si uh, Nicolai Sinai, uh, for example, uh, uh, Sidki, uh, of course, in, in the States and others are openly talking about all this. So Western scholarship, which is not Muslim, of course, is confirming exactly the kind of thing uh, that you are talking about, Adnan. And it does beg a belief. And I'm sure I don't know how these scholars deal with it, but it does beg a belief that a 7th century unlettered shepherd whatever could possibly yep. put this mm. together it 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 has way way too much sophistication to it uh and uh subtlety uh, and uh, my favorite area in christian theology like sir 112 which, which you're not going into but you know the the, the precision theology we see in in sir 112 um has been noticed by people like angela and newworth and others top western scholars and it's remarkable what they've discovered. Uh, and um, it, it, it really beggars belief that this could be just the ignorant copy and paste jobs of a 7th century era. I don't think anyone believes that anymore. They're, they're, they're not answering the question, but 
it, it doesn't make sense anymore to me. Absolutely. And, and, and there are many scholars who have realized that there is far too much in the Quran for us to simply dismiss it as, yeah. uh, as a work of uh, plagiarism or forgery. Yeah. One of the scholars who actually comes to mind is Montgomery Watt, uh, William yeah. Montgomery Watt from Edinburgh University, who was an expert on uh, Islamic studies. He stated, and I'm paraphrasing, that uh, Muhammad, uh, there is far too much in the Quran for us to to claim that Muhammad was an imposter, basically. So he, he said, we, we just can't simply claim that he was an imposter and just walk away from it. Rather, there is yeah. far too much in the Quran for us to contemplate before we accuse Muhammad, peace be upon him, of imposture. So, so but, but, but did more than that. I mean, he, he was, as you say, a great, great scholar. In fact, he died not that long ago at the age of like 90 something. He was really old. Hmm. But um, hmm. he was ordained in the Church of Scotland. You can look at his bio on Wikipedia. But he did come to the conclusion through his incredibly long career studying intensely the Quran that it was of divine mm. origin he was quite open about that uh, that it was in some sense revelation that's what he said and that Muhammad was a prophet but he remained a an orientalist western christian minister nonetheless but he, he encountered this reality and changed his mind and he called on christians actually i i, I read this of him uh, to recognize the prophethood of Muhammad as christians he said christians the church must recognize that Muhammad was a real prophet i'm not quite sure how he squares that with his theology i'm not really interested in that but that's what he concluded after a lifetime of intensive study of the arabic quran and the seerah of the prophet yes absolutely and and this is why many christian scholars are coming to accept in recent times that there is uh, there is some divine origin in the message of Islam and Muhammad. One of them who actually came on one of your podcasts, uh, I forgot the, the, uh, the scholar's name, um, he actually acknowledged um, on one of your podcasts that he believes that yeah. Muhammad uh, was a prophet. He was a prophet of God. Now, this alone shows that, yeah. th that it's, not, it's, not, it's not as simple as rejecting the Quran or Islam as, as a work of uh, plagiarism or copying from ancient stories and putting them together uh, and doing an uh, excellent editorial work. It, it doesn't, you can't walk away. From, there, is, there is far too much information in the Quran, far too many subtleties, far too many indicators that highlight the divine origin of the Quran. And there are so many other things I can discuss. I want to very quickly mention a couple of them before we end. I'm just going to mention this book, by the way, if people want to follow this up, uh, Sidney H. Griffiths, who is a, a top-notch uh, Western uh, scholar, is recommended by Harvard and, and uh, Oxford and Cambridge. Um, he, he, he in, in much more uh, academic detail than we can do here, goes into many of these issues that Adnan is mentioning about the polemical subtlety and the nuance we see in the Quran. The cut-and-paste job idea is gone. We're dealing here with some very sophisticated and nuanced retelling of the biblical stories according to the Quran's own understanding of these events. But, Can yeah. you read the title, Paul? Can you read Sorry, the title? Of the it's called the Bible in Arabic, although and there is a bit here on the Bible in Arabic. There's also a lot, though, on the scriptures hmm. of the people of the book in the language of Islam um, by Sidney, Sidney H. Griffiths, professor in America. Um, hmm. You can easily get it on, uh, on Amazon in paperback. Uh, this, if, if you're seriously involved in this area, this is a book one must have actually it, it is uh, about standing scholarship uh, recognized in the field as being a, a work of uh, a great erudition anyway. actually he's an, he's an excellent scholar on history as well uh, he wrote a book on uh, interactions between uh, uh, islam and christianity i think the book is titled uh, the church under the mosque by sydney h griffith yeah, yeah that's an excellent book as well he's a right. he's a great scholar no doubt no doubt. So, so moving on to some of uh, another point I wanted to quickly mention uh, about Jesus and uh, and Adam. So, when God addresses the point that Jesus is simply a creation of God, uh, he's not a divine person. Uh, he's not divine because he was born without a father. Because some Christians claim that Jesus is divine and he had no father. Of course, he was born. Uh, he was he was begotten through Mary. But he is actually divine, right? So to 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 highlight that point, or to uh, how can I put to address that particular point from the Christian theology, God simply states in chapter three of the Quran, verse fifty-nine, that the similitude of Jesus is like Adam. Inna masala Isa in the lahi kamasali Adama, right? Uh, the similitude, or basically, Jesus is similar to Adam. 
Okay. And how are they similar? God simply said, be, and they became. They were born of God's mm. power of creation. God's yeah. word. They were born of God's word of creation. For example, when God wants to create something, it simply says, be, and it becomes. This is how simple it is. The Quran mentions this point a number of times. For example, in chapter 2, verse 116 or 117, um, When God want, wants a matter to be, he simply says, be, and it becomes. Right? So when God says in 359, when Allah says in 359, Surah Ali Imran, verse 59, that Jesus and Adam are similar, right? Mm. The point being addressed in that particular verse there is the birth of Jesus and the birth of Adam because they were born, they were both born without fathers. And in the case of Adam, he was born without a mother uh, also, right? So there is the similarity. The similarity is basically a miraculous birth, right? But there is another similarity which is subtle in the Quran. And what is that similarity? Both are mentioned by name exactly the same time. Exactly wow. the same time. You read from chapter 1 of the Quran to 114, you will see that Mo, uh, sorry, Adam and Jesus are mentioned 25 times each by name. By name, both of them, right? It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. From chapter 1 to chapter 359, where the verses, both are mentioned seven times each. Right? Both from chapter 1 to 359, both are mentioned seven times each. And from 359 to the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 114, both are mentioned 18 times each. So 18 times on, 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 on let's say, the ending side of the Quran, um, uh, from 359 onwards and seven times from 359 backwards towards the beginning, right? Now, one can say, okay, 25 times both are mentioned together exactly the same time. This is a fluke. This is an accident. But come on, from chapter 1 to 359, seven times each and from three to 359 to chapter 114, 18 times, even that is an accident? Come on. So, so this is, I believe, some kind of mathematical coding within the Quran or its text or even its, its, uh, its tartib, what we call the order of the chapters of the Quran, right? A lot of people claim, a lot of Orientalists actually claim the Quran was put together randomly by the companions of Muhammad and this is the order they gave to us. And this order is essentially Uthmanic. But Uthman, according to some of the reports we have received, did not change the order. Okay, he, he didn't change even the order of the verses, let alone the surahs, right? So, um, nothing was changed. So, in this order, the Quran was delivered by the Prophet to his companions. And when we look at the order, it seems to have been mathematically coded in these subtle ways. There, right? there are many examples I, I've heard, like the number of the times that men and women are mentioned, and angels and demons and light and day and earth and sky. And so, there's incredible pairings of numbers, which, and sometimes the, 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 the numbers of occurrences are themselves significant. Um, sometimes, I don't know if they're significant or not, but you know, this is a quite a widespread phenomenon in the Quran, which suggests a certain uh, overarching compositional uh, unity of authorship rather than a committee of authors or a randomness in the compilation of the surahs. It suggests this kind of architectonic structure, which is encompasses all of these surahs of the Quran. Absolutely. And Paul, um, I have so many other things I can mention, but it will prolong the video. Uh, uh, and, and, and I'm not going anywhere, Adnan. If you want to add some more for good measure, um, I'm sure everyone will be very happy to. The thing is that people can, uh, and I may make smaller segments of the video anyway for People, okay, uh, so, so uh, there, there is something else mathematical, uh, which is I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna mention this passingly. The 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 largest chapter of the Quran is chapter two. It yeah. consists of two hundred and eighty six verses. So the middle verse of the largest chapter of the Quran is okay. one hundred and forty three. It would be one hundred and forty three, and if you read the middle verse of the largest chapter of the Quran, you will see. Uh, this, this simply cannot be an accident, right? If you read it, verse 143, it's something fascinating. Mm. Oh, so, so this is obviously in English, and there's a footnote. I'm reading it from um, uh, Abdul Halim's translation, which is okay. usually seen as the, the, one of the better translations for sure. Yeah. 
Um, mm -hmm. So we have made you believers into a just community. There's a footnote B saying literally a middle nation. Um, yes. From take to mean moderate so that you may hear. So you may bear witness to the truth before others. And so that the messenger may bear witness to it before you. So um, I think I know where you're going with this, but yeah, a just community or a middle nation. You see, the Arabic word is more telling, right? It mm. says, We have made you a middle nation, a middle nation. The Arabic word in was, the Arabic word was, it means literally in the middle, right in the middle. Okay, neither right nor left. You are actually in the, the middle, right? So, uh, this is the largest chapter of the Quran and the middle verse is 143. And what does it say? That we have made you a middle nation. So this, this again, you know, it's, it's an indicator to, um, to uh, basically some kind of mathematical co coding of the Quran uh, when it comes to verses on this side uh, uh, and on that side. Mm. So moving on, moving mm. on to another point I wanted to, sorry, Paul, you want to say something? No, no, please do. Please, I'm anxious to hear yeah, moving on to another point about the 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 phenomenon uh, mm. called Muhammad in the Bible, sallallahu right. alaihi The Quran claims that he has been mentioned in the previous scriptures, in the Gospel, as well as the Torah, right? Mm. In the Torah. So this debate has been going on. The Christians uh, have been insisting that he is not found in the gospel anywhere, even though we have some references to a person coming in the future after Jesus Christ, who will fulfill uh, uh, who, who will fulfill the tasks that have been left by Jesus Christ, who uh, tasks unfulfilled as far as Jesus was concerned, right? So this is someone coming in the future who will complete the job. He will complete the tasks, right? But the Christians insist that's not... Uh, that's not Muhammad, that's the Holy Spirit, and the debate goes on, right? Yeah. But in the Torah, uh, in particular, the five books, the Pentateuch, there are some references to Arabia, and these are special references. When I say special references, these are references to uh, apparently three locations, right? Uh, chapter 33 of the book of Deuteronomy and verse 2. States, Lord came from Sinai, the classic verse many Muslim scholars and debaters have used in the debates uh, repeatedly against Christians to highlight the prophecy or the prophethood of Muhammad, peace be upon him, coming from Arabia. So what are these three locations mentioned in Deuteronomy 33.2? Uh, Lord came from Sinai, he rose um, from Mount Sire, and he shone forth from Mount Paran. So there are three locations, geographical locations, in this particular verse. Number one is Sinai, uh, which is a reference to Moses, of course. Sair or Sire uh, is a mountain range in Palestine, which may be a reference to Jesus Christ, right? And the third reference is Paran. Paran is Arabia. Even according to the Bible, Paran is Arabia because uh, Ishmael was left in Paran. According to uh, the book of Genesis chapter 21, Ishmael was left in Paran by his father. And then we move on to the book of Isaiah, chapter 21. There, uh, there we find a prophecy about Arabia. And in that prophecy, Kedar is mentioned, who is the second son of Ishmael. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is, Paran is definitely Arabia, according to the biblical text. So there are three geographical locations mentioned in the Bible in a special way, right? So the first reference is to Moses. The second to Palestine, which is definitely a reference to Jesus. The third is to Arabia, and from Arabia, there's nothing else other than Muhammad, peace be upon him, when it comes to prophecy. Now, amazingly, when we go to the Quran, in the Quran, we find the same three locations mentioned in a very different way, in a very different way. For example, uh, I don't remember the chapter number, Surah uh, the chapter called the fig. Uh, the fig, the chapter called the fig, where mm -hmm. Allah says, "What tini was zaitun by the fig and by the olive." So God swears by the fig and the olive, by the Mount Sinai, baladil amin, and this blessed land. Amazingly, when Surah, we look at the location, Surah 95, by the way, Surah 95. Surah 95. Uh, yeah, yeah. Surah 95. So the first 
three verses. Wattini was zaytun wa turi sinin wa hada al-balad al-amin. By the the fig and the olive. Oh yeah. This is a geographical reference, by the way, in case people don't understand. By the Mount Sinai and by this blessed land. So these three words or these three references are used for three geographical locations. So what does Allah mean by the fig and the olive? Paul, you tell me. What do you think? <laughs> Which well, land is this <laughs> you're, you're here to teach. I can guess, but I'm not going to embarrass myself. After you, Adnan, please tell us. Please okay, teach us. This is this is definitely a reference to Palestine because two of the specialties or two of the, the, the special products, let's say, of Palestine, the land of greatest, uh, the land of greater Syria, let's say, uh, Jordan, Palestine and uh, Lebanon and Syria, uh, the best product. I mean, some of the best things produced in this region are olives and fig, more so than other things, because I've been to Jordan myself, right? Um, I've been to Syria. Uh, and I've seen that when you go out in the countryside, you see, as far as the eye can see, you see trees of olives and fig in, in, in particular, right? So this is a clear reference, a glaring reference to the land of greater Syria, possibly to Palestine, referring to Jesus Christ. The second reference is Mount Sinai, which is clearly to Moses. And Wahad al-Baladil Amin where this chapter was actually revealed, chapter 95 of the Quran, and where the Prophet Muhammad was at the time, and that was Mecca, Mecca, the city of Mecca. So three references to geographical locations, exactly the same as Deuteronomy 32. This was not an accident, and this was not a concoction on the part of Prophet Muhammad So again, this is a subtlety which was actually no, uh, noticed by some Muslim scholars, in particular Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim, in the books, they actually mentioned that this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 33.2. Yes, absolutely. Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned this in his book, Al-Jawab al-Sahih, Iman Baddar al al-Masih. And uh, even Ibn Qayyim mentioned uh, similarly. Uh, Tim is an absolutely phenomenal thinker. I, I, the, the more I read about him, his uh, extraordinary mind it seems to encompass so many things. Um, absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this is another point in the Quran where we can see that amazingly, you know, uh, this is just um, this is a powerful reference, you know, to something. Also, another quick uh, qu thing I want to quickly mention: uh, mm -hmm. the word Rakim, the word Rakim in the story of Ashabul Kahf in the Quran, in chapter eighteen of the Quran, right, mm -hmm. uh, where the story of these youngsters is mentioned that they were basically they took refuge in a cave mm -hmm. uh, when there was a persecution. A Roman persecution against Christians and many yeah. Christians have taken refuge uh, so that they don't have to worship idols, right? So what the Roman authorities were doing, they were basically catching all the Christians and uh, bringing them to temples and asking them to bow to idols and pay respects to idols. So these uh, youngsters had taken refuge in a cave and they were put to sleep as a miracle and then they woke up uh, a century and a half later and they found themselves in a different time trying to use money from uh, another emperor's reign and the story goes on but one of the things that mentions uh, uh, basically a, a phenomenon in the story given to us in the quran is the word rakim and abdullah bin abbas one of the most learned men in the history of islam especially when it comes to the the science of tafsir he said uh, uh, i do not know the meaning of two words in the quran i am aware of other words but two words in particular I am not aware of as to what they mean. One was Fatir. Fatir. The word Fatir of Samawati. Well, uh, the word Fatir, I wasn't aware of what it means. And Ar-Rakim. Ar-Rakim didn't make sense to Abdullah bin Abbas what, uh, what it actually meant, right? Fatir, he found out what it means is basically to make because he, he, he saw two Arabs uh, in the desert, two Bedouins uh, fighting over a well of water. And both of them were saying, Fatartu, Fatartu, Fatartu. Yani, I made it, I made it. So he understood the meaning of the word Fatir from the Bedouins, right? But the word Rakim, he couldn't. Rakim basically means, uh, in the Arabic language, it comes from the word Rakam, which means inscribed, you can say. It means inscribed. And in the story of uh, the seven sleepers of Ephesus, we are told... I'm just saying, by the way, in Abdul Halim's uh, translation, as a footnote, which I won't read, but just basically said what you just uh, said, the inscription bearing the name. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I was in Ephesus just a couple of weeks ago in Turkey, allegedly going to the site of this story. And then when I actually got there, very disappointing, but there was actually a sign there in English saying, well, well there are about 10 other places, even in Turkey, claiming to be this location of this very event. And I thought, oh, dear. Right. So I may not really be in the actual place. But anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there are so many different places attributed to the seven sleepers of uh, the cave, let's say. Right. Not Ephesus, because Ephesus then... Uh, it claims that the place is in Ephesus. But I have seen a place in Jordan. I was in Jordan and I saw uh, exactly. a, a spot where they're saying that this is where the sleepers were. But we, we we don't know. We don't know where they were. And they were definitely, hopefully, or potentially, uh, within the Roman period in the, the Roman territory. And Ibn Kathir actually mentions that this refers to the persecution of Decius, right? Emperor Decius, who governed for two years from 249 to 251 CE, and his persecution was one of the worst persecutions in Christian history, more so than Nero's and Marcus Aurelius's and even Diocletian's. Uh, this persecution was one of the worst ones, even though it only lasted for two years because he governed for two years. And it really destroyed a lot of people. A lot of Christians were killed as a result of this persecution. And, and Ibn Kathir, he claims, based upon some Judeo-Christian literature, that this persecution that's being referred to uh, in the case of seven, seven sleepers of Ephesus happened during the time of Dakianus. Dakianus is the Arabic uh, word for Decius, Emperor Decius, basically. So, so uh, the point here is the word Ar-Rakim. Ar-Rakim is basically an inscription that was put outside the, the cave for these youngsters, uh, to, for these youngsters not to be disturbed, basically. Don't disturb them. They are sleeping inside the cave. And then they were, of course, they came out of the cave. So this is an idea uh, which uh, comes from my study of history. Uh, and this makes sense, Paul, not because of the legendary story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus, but there is something else I came to learn about this particular phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The inscription outside tombs, these were called funerary imprecations. Mm -hmm. Historically speaking, this is the point I'm trying to make now. The, the, the phenomenon in the Quran called Ar-Rakim or the word Ar-Rakim actually has a deeper uh, connotation, right? Uh, we, can, we can read it at surface level that, oh, the story, the legendary story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus mentions that there was uh, uh, basically... An inscription puts out, put outside the tomb, let's say, the tomb where they were buried, right? But it goes deeper than that. In the ancient world, when someone would die, there would be a funerary imprecation put outside the tomb or the grave to scare people away because they were, there was a lot of tomb raiding. People were desecrating graves mm. to find treasures, to find uh, belongings that are buried with the deceased or pottery. And, and as you are probably aware, uh, if you go to the British Museum, you will see a lot of Greek vases that came from Greek tombs, right, found inside the tomb. So people would simply raid tombs and loot them, right? So to avoid that, uh, funerary imprecations would be put outside the tombs to scare people away that don't disturb or, the deceased. Or, or you'll be cursed. Or be, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. A supernatural warning. If you tamper with this, you're going to get dealt with horribly somehow exactly yeah. exactly absolutely and mm -hmm. and what the quran may be i'm not saying this is what it is i'm saying what the quran may be referring to is that particular phenomenon that mm -hmm. a funerary imprecation was placed outside the cave uh, mm -hmm. as if it's a, it's a tomb and uh, that the quran mentions as a rakim the inscription right mm -hmm. and this is again it comes from the study of history not necessarily the study of the story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus, which was well known in the ancient world at the time. So there are so many subtle ideas, subtleties in the Quran, and we can go on and on and on. I, mean, I, I, I know just from my uh, acquaintance with uh, um, the researchers going on uh, at, at Oxford uh, that I'm hearing about, uh, th th these subtleties are being uncovered uh, all the time by Western scholarship now. Um, and it is a cause of marvel and uh, a great appreciation, even on a secular level, for this, this book called the Quran. Um, it's much more than the Western scholarship used to think it was uh, in its richness, its subtlety and its extraordinary profundity when it comes to polemically engaging with Christian theology and other things. But you're talking about specific historical subtleties, which could not have been known by just some seventh century Arab. Um, Absolutely. 
Totally. <laughs> Another quick thing I wanted to just quickly mention when Solomon and the interaction between Solomon and Ant is taking place, when yes. the army of Solomon is coming and the Ant warns uh, yes. its companions that we need to hide, we need to run away because we will be crushed and we will be broken. The word in the Arabic language used is broken. And it doesn't make sense. How can, we, how can, how can an insect be broken? But when you look at the structure of the ant, the, the, the phys physiology of an ant, for example, let's say, right? You see it's made of uh, glass-like structure. It's, it's made, it's, 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 it's basically, if you, if you see in a dead ant, which has been around for a long time, it will break. It will not simply uh, come apart, but it will actually break as if it's glass, right? Or it's plastic. These kind of subtleties, these kind of words used in the Quran for specific uh, situations, for specific uh ideas or specific realities is unbelievable and there are, the list is again uh, you know i keep saying this i i hope i wish we had more time but i think my my energy levels have already gone no, 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 we, we've uh, now. You, you've, you've done amazingly well it's just over an hour so thank you very much uh adnan for your um for going through some of these fascinating examples and i say this is a subject the western scholarship is now finally um caught up with um in many many aspects it's a very exciting time to study uh the quran in the west as well uh, as islamically so um this is an ongoing research project this is not like oh we now know these things have been discovered uh these days these are contemporary discoveries um and they continue to continue to marvel people who discover them like yourself and other researchers so Adnan, thank you so much for your valuable time um, and all, all the work you do. And may it continue. I would say people should um, uh, watch for further videos uh, on your YouTube um, site, which is under your name. Uh, some of these issues discussed in much more detail as well, and on Twitter. And just Google Adnan, you'll 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 see him all over the place. So, um, thank you very much, Adnan, and um, best wishes. And um, maybe I'll see you at Speaker's Corner. Are you going to go to Speaker's Corner, or is it? Are you hibernating for the winter? I am actually, uh, I might be at the corner. Yeah. I might be at the corner because I'm, I'm traveling up north uh, this weekend and I'm not sure if I'm going to be back by Sunday. But if I am, then definitely uh, when I'm in London, corner is one of the places I love to visit uh, for obvious reasons. As you know, Paul, we, we are veterans. <laughs> <laughs> we are veterans. We need, I've noticed recently there's been, you know, a dearth of big hitters, or the, the big beasts, as I call them. You know, where where has everyone gone? And we need to get some quality people back because um, it's it's turning into a bit of a trashy place at the moment. But uh, hopefully things will improve in the new year as well. Thank, all you. Right. Thank you very much, Adnan Rashid, for all your time. And um, until Thank next you. time. My pleasure. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.